Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. As we stand, let me pray for us now. We've been singing these words, so Lord, and now we want to very definitely pray them, that you would speak to us in these next moments through your word, the Bible, that your church, not only here but across this land, would be built to your praise and glory. We ask you to do these very things that we've been singing, to shape and fashion us in your likeness, to cause our faith to rise, and to help us to grasp the heights of your plans for us. And we pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his ultimate praise and glory. Amen. Amen. Please do sit down. Well, let me add my welcome to that of uh, Andrew's earlier in the service. And if you are here for the first time, for whatever reason, whether it's to come and celebrate uh, the baptism of Brielle or uh, for any other reason at all, uh, let me say uh, you've come uh, on a good Sunday uh, for the first time, as it were, because we're starting a new series looking at the book of Isaiah. And to that end, you might like to uh, turn with me uh, to the uh, Bible reading that we had earlier, Isaiah chapter uh, 1 to 4, that we won't be able to look at all four chapters, but we'll certainly be thinking about all four chapters. Page 685 is the page number. And uh, if this would be useful for you, you'll also find a handout that has been put in your little bundle um, that you can follow uh, as we go through so you can see where we're going. Now, it could be that as I get older, I'm beginning to see things differently. But on, on this issue, I don't think so. And that is the state of the nation. It is declining morally and ethically, isn't it? It's not just me uh, getting older, is it? Uh, For starters these days, there seems to be a lack of integrity and honesty from our leaders at the the very highest level. So the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority have been far too busy in these last years following the disgrace over MPs' expenses. And then there's the Leveson Inquiry investigating the role of the press and the police in the phone hacking scandal. Uh, The revelations of how vulnerable people have been abused in a desire to sell more newspapers and how politicians have sucked up to media moguls because of their fear of negative publicity. Well, I don't know about for you, you, but for me it's been both uh, shocking and heartbreaking to hear uh, some of the stories. And it seems there is in this nation a lack of concern for the marginalised and vulnerable in society. Just this morning I heard for the... That for the first time, Save the, Fa- Save the Children, the, uh, the uh, organisation, will be directing funds to children in poverty in this country rather than just in places uh, like Africa, the state of our nation. Or, or take a look at the state of our city. Uh, just consider a, a normal Saturday in Sheffield. Uh, on a Saturday morning, thousands pour into Meadow Hall to spend money that they haven't got in an attempt to satisfy what is missing in their lives. We call it comfort shopping, retail therapy. On a Saturday afternoon, others crowd into Bramall Lane or Hillsborough to cheer on stars of a game that is not so beautiful and is full of cheats who earn eye-watering sums of money. On a Saturday night, others make their way to the city centre where their evening consists of getting drunk and attempting to pick up a partner drowning their sorrows, looking for something or someone who will give them their heart's desire. In this city, morning, afternoon and night, every Saturday in this city, thousands make a pilgrimage to worship at one of the great cathedrals of hedonism, 
where consumerism, sport and sex make the promise of satisfaction and hope. But rather than a deep satisfaction and hope, the morning after the night before, people are left with a whopping great so what and the devastating deflation of of needing something more next week. And here's the thing. In the process, God's law is broken and the one true God who alone can satisfy our longings is rejected. It is grim. Look around at the dreadful state of our nation and our city and we can easily feel depressed and, and thoroughly downhearted. It is a dire situation. But I want to ask this morning, is it a hopeless one? Should we lose all hope in this declining world? Well, gloriously, the book of Isaiah says, no, no, it is not hopeless because the Lord Almighty, the the Holy One of Israel, as Isaiah calls him, is on a mission to bring about a mighty and glorious transformation. You'll see from the opening verse of Isaiah that this book is about Judah and Jerusalem. The first five chapters of Isaiah paint for us a horrendous picture of the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. The nation and the city are thoroughly sinful and rebellious. Look at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they rebelled against me. Look on to verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They've spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Look over to verse 21 of chapter 1, over the page. Chapter 1, verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now... Murderers. The first five chapters are dominated by more of the same. If we had time, it would be interesting to go through every single verse, but you can do that in your small groups as you study this uh, uh, later on in the month. Uh, let me look with you at just one more verse to kind of sum it all up uh, over the page again to chapter 3 and verse 8. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testify against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They don't hide it. Woe to them. They brought disaster upon themselves. We know that. You go to your workplaces. People parade their sin. Not ashamed of it anymore. It is a bleak and depressing picture sketching out for us how rebellious the people of Judah are and how sinful the city of Jerusalem is. And when we've looked at these opening chapters, as we will this week and next, we'll be left wondering if this dire situation is a hopeless situation. But here's why the book of Isaiah is so wonderful to study. The end of the book tells us, no, no, it's not hopeless In chapter 65 and 66, Isaiah gives us a vision of a time when God will gather together a people for himself from every nation of the world, including sinful Judah. And in those closing chapters, we see how the Lord has transformed them to be a holy people and how he's taken them to a glorious new heavenly Jerusalem, a a delightful city. Um, I've put uh, a couple of verses on the handout to show you the end of the book. Look at chapter 65, verses 17 to 19 on the handout there. The Lord says, see, I will create 
new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Whenever these verses are read, they give us a magnificent vision of God's future for his people. But in the context of this book, they are breathtaking. And we see this morning and next Sunday just how sinful Judah and Jerusalem are. And as we see that, so these last chapters shine all the more brightly. The last chapter and a half of Isaiah should leave us amazed and excited, thrilled by the power of God to transform such an apparently hopeless situation. Seeing the way the book of Isaiah ends gives us hope. As we look at our dark, rebellious world, there is always hope through the gospel of God. The world we live in is not beyond redemption. The situations that leave us so downhearted are not hopeless. Not when we know the glorious gospel of the Lord Almighty. That's the message of the book of Isaiah. But but it's also a book that leaves us in no doubt that there is only one hope. Only one way. Only one solution to the problem of rebellion against God. And that one solution is found in the one true living God, Isaiah's God, the Holy One of Israel. There is no other hope for our world. Now please don't pin your hopes on Cameron's big society or an economic upturn. In this season of party political conferences, don't pin your hopes on politics. Don't mishear me either. I'm not saying that politics aren't important. I'm just saying they're not going to solve the problem. And don't pin your hopes on the goodwill of the Olympic Games continuing. Look, I've loved the Olympics. I've loved the spirit that it's generated. But don't think that, uh, that, that sport can unite the nations in a glorious celebration of mankind's ability. And that's going to solve the problems of the world. Don't pin your hopes on better education or a tougher penal system or advances in technology or in science. Again, those things are important, but they are not where we're going to solve the problem. In a word... Don't pin your hopes on human beings. People have done that in the past and it always disappoints. And listen to uh, these words again that I've had printed on the, ser- on the uh, sermon outline. Uh, listen to the words of Prince Albert opening the great Crystal Palace exhibition of 1850. He said this. Nobody who's paid any attention to our present era will doubt for a moment that we are living at a period of most wonderful transition which moves rapidly to accomplish that great end to which indeed all history points, the realisation of the unity of mankind. Wow, what a speech it must have been. It's inspiring, isn't it? A united humanity, that was the hope in the middle of the 19th century. But what happened 50 years later? What, 60 years later? World War I. The war to end all wars, we were told. But 20 years later, the Second World War began. And Churchill said these words, if we can stand up to Hitler, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. Well, they did rid Europe of Hitler and we thank God that they did. But the broad, sunlit uplands have been darkened again and again by the monsters that rule this world. Don't pin your hopes on mankind. But don't become hopeless either, for there is hope. 
Not in mankind, but in the God of the book of Isaiah. And as Isaiah analyses the problem in Judah and Jerusalem in these opening chapters, we see why there is only one hope. And that is in the Holy One of Israel. First point after a rather lengthy introduction. At the bottom of the front page on the handout, the first point, the state of the nation, a rebellious child, chapter 1, verses 2 to 20. Now listen, everyone. Sorry, that's not me speaking. Now that's how the vision begins. Chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth. Listen, everyone, for the Lord has spoken. The Lord has spoken, and when the Lord speaks, we must listen. So what, does we have, what do we have to listen to? What does the Lord have to say? Verse 2, I reared children and brought them up, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows his master. The donkey is owner's manger. It is an outrage, isn't it? The Lord's own cho- chosen children have rejected him. It's an outrage, and it's utter folly, verse 3. The ox knows his master. The donkey knows his, man- his owner's manger. But Israel doesn't know. My people don't understand. See, for Judah to rebel against the Lord who has so tenderly cared for her, well, that makes this nation more stupid than an ass. And to act that way in rebellion against the Lord is sin and declares us guilty, evil, corrupt. Those are the words in verse 4 that are well worth noting. See, verse 4, ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt. A brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. What is it that makes us guilty and evil and corrupt? End of verse 4, they've forsaken the Lord. They've spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. There's the problem. That's the reason for all the moral and ethical decline in Judah. Rebellion against the Lord. And that's why no human solutions can put things right out of the heart. Our problem is, is theological, not sociological. And it runs very deep indeed. Look halfway through verse 5. Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. There is no soundness. Now, whenever my nana went on holiday, it was always to a British seaside resort. And she would always bring back a stick of rock for her three grandchildren, my brother, myself and my cousin. It wasn't a, a stick of rock exactly like this. It was always pink. Uh, with peppermint white on the inside, with the name of the resort running all the way through, Brighton, Blackpool, Clacton. She always went to really classy resorts. Uh, Wherever she'd been for a holiday, the name ran all the way through the stick of rock, no matter where you bit through it. Here in verses 5 and 6, Isaiah says that sin is like that, like the name in a stick of rock. It runs right through us. Do you see verse 6? From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness in you. And the reformers use the expression total depravity. Not to say that we are as bad as we could possibly be, but to express this truth that everything we do is affected or infected by sin. My thoughts, my actions, my motives, my words, all affected by sin. Even when I do good things, there's some wrong motive in them. My rebellion against God runs right through me and affects everything I do. And sin leaves us in dire straits, as we see in verses 7 to 9 of chapter 1. These are verses that point to judgment. It might not be obvious at first, but if you look at verse 7, you see this expression, your fields are being stripped away by foreigners. 
later in this book, we see that the foreigners mentioned in verse 7 were sent by the Lord as judgment upon Judah. And when a nation comes under judgment, it leaves it a shadow of what it once was. Look at verse 8. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. I love that picture of a hut in a field of melons. It mean, if it means nothing to you, picture a shed on an allotment. It's the same idea. Sitting there all alone, a bit rickety and, and generally looking pretty sorry for itself. A shed in an allotment. That's what Jerusalem has become as she sits under the judgment of God. A Jerusalem, Zion, which should have been such a, a splendid sight. Looks like a hut in a melon field, like a shed in an allotment. Still standing, but a shadow of its former self. Still standing, but only just and only because of God's restraint. Look at verse 9. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, remember, from uh, the book of Genesis, were completely obliterated by God's judgment. So here, Isaiah says, verse 9, unless the Lord Almighty had left some survivors, survivors, Judah too would have been completely destroyed. Do you see the state of the nation? Judah is thoroughly sinful and under judgment. But before we leave this little section, look at the effect sin has on our God. See, God speaks here as a father. Did you notice that in verse 2? I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. These rebellious children have been disciplined, but, but God doesn't want to keep rebuking them. Those of you who have children, you know, yeah. look, I know Julian and Beth, you know how hard it is as parents already. You know, Brielle, she's delightful, but uh, you know, we all know our children are naughty and you end up rebuking them. And sometimes you get into that habit where you rebuke and rebuke and rebuke and you think, I don't want to keep rebuking them. That's how the Lord is here. You see, verse 5, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? He doesn't want to keep rebuking them. The gracious father doesn't want to keep disciplining his children. He wants to soothe his children, to clean and bandage their wounds. That's verse 6. See, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no sound. It's only wounds and bruises and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. He longs to cleanse them. And you see, there's no question, sin ruins us. But do you see here just how much it hurts the father too? And so with this broken relationship causing father and child such pain, the Lord calls on his child to listen to his word, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Well, we saw it in verse 1, didn't we? Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth. Now he says it again. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. In that verse, there is such grace from God. This nation is like the wicked, wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, such sin. And yet the Lord pleads with them to listen to him, hear these words. What does he say to them? Verse 11, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I've more than enough of burnt sacrifice, of offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I've no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who's asked this of you? This trampling of my court, stop. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. 
See, listen to the Lord. He says very clear that he doesn't want meaningless religion from his people. And let's be sure religion is meaningless when it doesn't change our lives, when it doesn't affect the way that we treat others. And so the Lord says as he carries on with this little uh, point in verse 15, over the page, he says, look, verse 15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I won't listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop. There it is again. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Please plead the case of the widow. You got the point. This nation was religious, but it didn't care for the marginalized and underprivileged in society didn't care about injustice that's the state of the nation second and uh, over the page on the handout if you're still following along the, the state of the city an unfaithful prostitute you see that in chapter 1 verses 21 to 31 see in verses 21 to 23 we read about how the city was once faithful and righteous but now she's become a harlot, verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a harlot? She once was full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your choice wine is diluted with water, your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They don't defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Sounds like any modern Western city murder, theft, corruption. Leaders lining their own pockets, the establishment failing to care for the marginalised. We may well be used to it, but be sure a city like this is in a precarious state. For a city like this is, end of verse 24, an enemy of God. His hand, verse 25, is against this city. And in the case of Jerusalem, he promises, verse 25, to purge the city of the dross and remove all its impurities. Well, how else can he make the city as it should be? Now, you see, for Jerusalem, this is both a message of hope and a message of judgment, as we see that in verses 27 and 28. Verse 27, hope, Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. Judgment, verse 28, but rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. Jerusalem, you see, is a crucial city in the plan of God. And so the Lord Almighty promises to turn this city around, but in doing so, the wicked will be destroyed. How else can he bring us to this great, wonderful new Jerusalem unless he deals with all the wickedness? The state of the city then, she is disgusting in God's sight. She's like a prostitute. But once again, before we leave these verses, see the effect the sin of the city has on our God. You see, just as we saw in the first section that the Lord speaks as a loving father, here he speaks as a husband whose wife has been serially adulterous, uh, thoroughly promiscuous. Worse, he feels like a husband who's just discovered his wife is a prostitute, no less. That's verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. As we read these verses, do you feel it? Do you feel it? How sin pains our God. How sin hurts him. It is agony for him. 
The state of a nation, a rebellious child. The state of the city, an unfaithful prostitute. Third, the state of the heart, an arrogant idolater. This is chapter 2, verses 5 to 22. See, as we've looked through uh, Isaiah's opening chapter, we might well ask ourselves, why is the nation so rebellious against the Lord? And why is the city so unfaithful to the Lord? Well, in these verses, we see the answer. It is because the heart is so arrogant, so full of pride. We are so full of ourselves. In these verses, we discover the problem is not out there. The problem is not with the city or the nation. The problem's in here, in our hearts, in your heart and mine. Here's why the solution is not found in a political agenda or educational reform or scientific advance. In these verses, we see why the problem is so grave and why the solution can only be found in our God. The section begins with the command in verse 5 to walk in the light of the Lord. And it ends with the command, verse 22, to stop trusting in man. So you see, that's the issue. Judah doesn't walk in the way of the Lord, but trusts in man, in herself, in her own ability. And we see that very clearly in verses 6 to 9. As we look through verses 6 to 9, note the repetition of the word full. These verses describe what the nation is, is full of. Verse 6, Judah is full of superstitions. Every time there's a, a touch wood or, or fingers crossed, every time we avoid walking under a ladder or check our horoscope, we're trusting ourselves to something other than the Lord. Now, verse 7, the land is full of silver and gold. It's the belief that wealth can rescue us. It's when a healthy bank balance, a private medical insurance and a good pension gives me peace of mind and makes me feel secure. Then I'm not trusting the Lord, but I'm trusting myself and my own idea of security. Superstition and wealth and, verse 7, military might. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to the chariots. Today it's not horses and chariots, but the, the hardware of tanks and warships and planes. It's having strong armed forces to keep us safe. When we trust in those things, we're no longer trusting the Lord, but our own strength. We're okay. And then Isaiah writes, verse 8, their land is full of idols. And the idols he's mentioned, the idols of money and military power and superstition and anything we put in the place of God to protect us or, or satisfy us or live for. Judah was a land full of superstition, full of wealth, full of military might, full of idols and frankly, full of themselves. And that's really the issue. Full of things that, verse 8, their hands had made. Full of their own achievements and their own abilities and so full of pride. That's what these verses are really exposing. Pride and arrogance. See it running right through these verses. It's in verse 9. Man will be brought low and mankind humbled. It's in verse 11. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. It's in verse 12. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty. For all that is exalted, they will be humbled. And it's in verse 17. The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. You see, that's the real problem. Mankind's arrogance. At rebelling against God, ignoring his word, trusting in other things... Every time it's the result of pride. And God hates it. 
And it brings us under his judgment. And a day when those who trust in other things will have nowhere to run. Again, there's a little refrain. Look at verse 10. On that day they will go into the rocks, hiding the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. We see the same in verse 19. Men will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. And you see it again in verse 21. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to overhanging crags from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The point is this, pride and arrogance running right through this little section will be judged on one day. Mankind will be humbled on that day. And on that day we will see, although by then it will be too late, we will see that everything we've relied upon is rubbish. Look at verse 20. In that day men will throw away to the rodents and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold which they've made to worship. So this section pleads with us, verse 22, stop. There it is again. Stop trusting in man who's put a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? Don't trust in man. That's not the solution. Don't trust in man. Trust God. The state of the heart full of pride and arrogance. That's why we need God. Well, the state of the nation, the state of the city, the state of the heart, all that should have left Judah hopeless. But no. Here in these chapters we see a fourth thing, the hope of mankind, a gracious new beginning. You'll see that in chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, and chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. You see, as we come to a close, despite the sorry state of nation, city and heart, these opening verses give us a little glimpse of the gracious transformation that comes in God. We've seen already where this book is heading. It ends by pointing to a future time when God will gather together a people for himself from every nation of the world, including sinful Judah, transforming them into a holy people and taking them to a glorious new heavenly Jerusalem, a delightful city. That's how the book ends. We saw it in chapter 65. But here in this little introduction from chapters 1 to 5, just as an orchestra playing an overture plays the tune of everything to come, so here... Isaiah plays the melody of the end of the book. In chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, we discover a Jerusalem that is a good place to be, where all nations will be united in God, where God's law will be embraced and proclaimed, where God will judge with equity, where all war will be ended. As I read it, just listen to how different this place is to the nation and city we've been hearing of in chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes from many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They won't need uh, items of war anymore. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. It's a wonderful place of international harmony. Where God is ruler and his word obeyed. And then if you flip over, the very last section we're going to look at very briefly, 
chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, we learn of the heavenly Jerusalem to come, a beautiful and glorious place, so different from the Jerusalem that is being described in the rest of these first five chapters. This place, in this place, it is a city that is called holy. All filth is washed away. It is a safe place. It's a city full of the glory of God where his real presence is known. And listen into those things as I read chapter 4, verse 2 to 6. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride of the glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in the Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night, symbolising his presence. Verse 6, it will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. What a place. In the presence of God, that's the promise. Here is the hope of the nations, a gracious new beginning. Can you hear, as you read these chapters, these chapter 2 and chapter 4, can you hear Isaiah giving us a glimpse of the future hope that he speaks of in chapter 65? Well, we're nearly done, but I can't finish without pointing you back to chapter 1, verse 18. I love this verse, and it was right that uh, Andrew uh, introduced the service with it and then uh, referred to it later on because it is such a crucial verse. I love this verse because here in chapter 1 verse 18 we see the graciousness of God and we begin to glimpse how God will bring about this glorious transformation. Chapter 1 verse 18 the Lord says come now let us reason together. Isn't that remarkable? Astonishing grace. The almighty Lord of the entire creation who's been spurned by his people is ready to reason with them. And what does he say? Verse 18, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Here is the promise of sin forgiven, of complete cleansing. And it's the way to total transformation. Here is a glimpse of how the Holy One of Israel can take a thoroughly rebellious and sinful people to a glorious new heavenly Jerusalem. It's through the forgiveness of sin. Which, as you read on in Isaiah, you discover is the work of the servant who Isaiah writes about. The suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, supremely, who we know is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the hope of the nations. And so as we look at the nation, as we look at the city, as we look at the state of our hearts, Isaiah gives us hope. But that hope is only found in the gospel of God. Nowhere else can this problem be solved. Nothing else can deliver on a promise. And so at the beginning of this new academic year, let's be thrilled again by this gospel that gives us hope. Let's be thankful afresh for the Lord Jesus who brings us life. Let's be committed again to the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. For he is the only hope for a rebellious nation, an unfaithful city, and our arrogant hearts. Let's pray together.
Our Lord and God, as we uh, look at these opening chapters of Isaiah, we, we find ourselves shocked by our sinfulness and by the rebellion against you, the loving father, the faithful husband. And we find ourselves exposed by the truth of these words, revealing to us what we're really like. And yet we also find ourselves amazed uh, that you, such a, a gracious, glorious God, should give us such a glimpse of future hope despite our sinfulness. And so we pray we would be people who, who hate our sin and are people who, who long uh, to proclaim this good news of the uh, hope for the future. Help us to be passionate about that. And may it all be to your praise and glory. Amen.